Last week we, we finished Luke's version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Plain. It's a wonderful sermon. And if you recall, Jesus' purpose in that sermon is to instruct his apostles and disciples on what kingdom membership looks like. And it's also to call people that had not yet identified with Jesus, call them to discipleship. And if you recall, Jesus presents himself, especially as a new king. Like he's the, he's the king, and he's a revolutionary king. He's a different kind of king. The world had never seen a king like him, and he outlines his kingdom. It's this upside-down kingdom. It's upside down to the way this fallen world operates. Now really, standing back, it's the way the true world does operate. But we live in a fallen world. So Jesus is saying that as you and I live by faith, as we exhibit his manner of life, like this is his way of of changing the world, of transforming the world. We love our enemies. You know, as we do good to those who harm us, things like that. And really it points to the gospel itself because the gospel is the most upside down kingdom act ever, right? In the gospel, for love of enemies, the father sends his beloved, the eternal son of God, who then leaves his home and all his glory and riches and does such good to those who hate him that he takes to himself all of their blame and all of their guilt at the cross underneath the judgment of God and does away with it in his person. That act of infinite love and utter humility is how he conquers death, sin, and hell for us. That's the upside down kingdom that you believe in when you embrace the gospel. And so now we're moving to another section, and this section goes from chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. And it's a wonderful, wonderful section. We're going to see some awesome stories. And it's a section in which Jesus' identity is questioned, and that makes total sense because he's just said, I'm the king of a kingdom. So his identity is now going to be questioned. And at the same token, in relation to that, the sort of faith that he's worthy to receive is going to be considered. So his identity is questioned, and therefore the kind of faith he's worthy to receive is going to be considered and dealt with. And so the first story, this story is just a beautiful story. It's so full of grace, and it especially highlights the faith Jesus is worthy to receive. So it's a story of the centurion. Let's read it. Verse 1 to verse 10 of chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that's the Sermon on the Plain, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, 
He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said... I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade. But this good word, it endures forever. Thanks be to God. So... Again, Jesus concludes his great sermon. He returns to Capernaum. And if you recall, ever since he got run out of Nazareth, right, uh, Capernaum became his home base. So Matthew 9 calls it his own city. Mark 2 suggests that returning to Capernaum is returning home. So this is home base for Jesus, ministry center. This is where he feels most comfortable. And this story sure seems to indicate that Jesus' presence in Capernaum is making a difference. There's this wonderful, gracious influence that appears to be present in this village. And we ask, why is that? It must be owing to Jesus. It must be owing to his teaching, his healing, and probably especially his praying. So the Scottish minister, William Still, says this about this section. It is, I think, one of the most delightsome, start using that in sentences, one of the most delightsome passages in the whole of the New Testament with not a ripple of disturbance even on the surface. And it's kind of in stark contrast with some other passages, if you recall. So let me just think about it. You got, there's a lot of room for some conflict here, but there's no conflict. There's a Gentile centurion who pays a ton of money to rebuild a Jewish synagogue because he loved the nation and presumably he fears God. There's A centurion, a tough military man who could be hardened, but he's torn up about the bad health of his servant. There's Jewish elders who are emotionally invested and deeply concerned that Jesus do good for a Gentile military man who represents Rome. There's a Gentile centurion in authority in the military who has an incredibly exalted view of the lordship of Christ. It's this environment where people are honoring God and doing good to each other. Why is that? You know, I mean, there's wonderful dad figures here, right? All over it, caring for people, looking after 
people. And why is that? Well, one, the Pharisees aren't around. But even more, it's Jesus. It has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. And it just makes me think of us in our city, in our village, in our area. We, we, are, the pres- we are the presence of Christ where he has located us. And so we ask, is our city, is our area perceiving that seasoning of grace through us as a local body of Christ? It makes me think of uh, back in the early Reformation when you know, Bloody Mary was you know, martyring all kinds of ministers in Scotland. John Knox flees to Geneva. He wants the Reformation to come to Scotland so badly. He goes, I'm going to Geneva. I'm going to learn from Calvin. He goes to Calvin. He stays there's three years. He writes his sister back home. You can't believe this place. It's the most wonderful school of Christ I've ever seen. Like I've heard good preaching in Scotland, but nobody applies it like they're trying to do in Geneva. I want that so badly back home. We're seeing something of this in Capernaum. We want to see something of this in our city, in our region. All right, so I want to say seven observations and applications about this story. There's just so much here, it was hard for me to condense it down. So here's seven observations. First, the centurion develops faith in Jesus from hearing of him from others. So again, he's broken up about his servant. They must have been good friends. He was, it says, highly valued. It was precious, respected. You know, I imagine if you remember the, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made, Gladiator, that General Maximus' friendship with his servant Cicero. Remember how good of friends they were. And Cicero makes that memorable nugget of wisdom when he looks at Maximus and says, sometimes I do what I want to. The rest of the time I do what I have to. You know, apply that to your life. That's a good nugget of wisdom. But anyway, Maximus has a strong relationship with Cicero. I I view it that way. In fact, he calls him servant, doulos, earlier on, but later he calls him pais, which is also son. Kind of a father-son relationship appropriate for today. So Matthew remarks that the servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. It looks like he's at death's door, really. So Luke says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, and it's a beautiful line, when he heard about Jesus, like he hadn't ever come face to face with Jesus himself personally. He heard it from others, like by hearsay, second or third parties. He's just heard of him and his reputation. He sends elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And the instruction for us is, you know, you and I are those who have encountered Jesus. We have. We know Jesus personally. And we get this honor of being able to tell of him to others in need so they too can go to him. Second, uh, Jesus is the Savior for all peoples without distinction. All peoples need Jesus. In this section, from 7.1 to 8.3, the models of faith intentionally that Luke records is the Gentile centurion showing there's no racial favoritism, ethnic 
favoritism. And later, it's the very famous story in Luke 7, 36 through 50 of, of the woman who enters the Pharisee's house and weeps and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears, showing there's no male-female like hierarchy favoritism in the kingdom of God. And so we don't know what nationality the centurion is. He's clearly not Jewish, as our text makes abundantly clear. He's not Roman because historians tell us Romans weren't occupying Galilee until AD 44. He's part of Herod Antipas's military. It was organized according to Roman lines. He could have been from a number of different countries, from any number of races and ethnicities, and he's there warning Jesus' presence. And so recall that way back at Jesus' birth, old Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. We see some of this coming to pass now in Jesus' ministry. In fact, when the Jewish elders, leaders of the community, when, when they go to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, whether they know it or not, or conscious of it or not, they are fulfilling the commission given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed that Israel never was chosen for this exclusive privilege. They were chosen to be instruments of grace to the world, and they're doing that today. It's a truth that comes out that every nation needs Jesus. The cultures of the world flourish as they come into relationship with Jesus. Michael David spoke about this some this morning, about the colonial perspective in Africa when the colonial period ended in Africa about the middle of the 20th century, as he was remarking this morning, Western scholars predicted that all mission work would fizzle and die out. So we're talking about the middle of the 20th century. And the reason for that is because Africa had their own indigenous gods, and everybody knows Christianity is the white man's religion. But... What happened was actually remarkable is that when all the structure of colonialism caved in, Christians and the fruit of mission effort actually multiplied and flourished, and Christians assumed leadership posts and stabilized countries and it awed people. And so there are a number of reasons for that, and Harvard professor from Africa, Lamin Sani, in his book, Whose Religion is Christianity, offers this profound one, which I really like. I've been looking for the opportunity to use it. Um, he said, Christianity grew because it didn't just rebuke cultures. It also reconfigured worldviews. Like it showed the true reason for the legitimate desires they had and they cherished. So, whereas modern Western man sought to debunk the supernatural and explain everything by the laws of science, the Africans knew there was a supernatural world. He says, it was not that the old spells turning benign from overuse had dulled the appetite, 
but that under challenge, their spent potency sparked a clamor for a valiant God. Now, what he's saying is, it's not just that they knew they weren't working, their spiritual activities, but that underneath that, they recognized that they were onto something, but they were confused. So then he goes on to say, people sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. See, the truth is that every culture hinges on Jesus, must have Jesus to complete it and make it flourish in their unique way on him. But he must be Lord of our cultures. The centurion realizes this. It's such a stunning illustration for us. He's from another country, another religion. He's tried it all, done it all. He said, Caesar is Lord. He's looked at the different answers the nations have said. And he's chosen the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from a subjugated people under the authority of Rome with a high respect for Jesus. It's beautiful. Third, we need a mediator, you and I. We need a mediator. And the centurion knows that. He doesn't go to Jesus himself. He's a Gentile, a foreigner to the covenant promises. In a moment, we're going to see it goes much deeper than that for him. But he instinctively knows he needs a mediator, a go-between to intercede on behalf of him um, before God. And it's a good instinct. And what grace does to us is it kind of registers with us. And we come to the conclusion that who am I to stand before God on my own? And our elevated opinions of ourselves just kind of implode. And we can't imagine standing before a holy God on our own. And we know we need a mediator. And he does so. The Welsh preacher Jeff Thomas however, says this about that. His instinct is right. He needs a mediator. However, the centurion puts the wrong mediators and the wrong arguments. You see, these Jewish elders are leaders in Capernaum, but they really aren't the right mediators between a sinner and a holy God. There's only one mediator, and the one mediator is there. He came all the way to Capernaum to be the mediator for the centurion. And the Jewish elders' arguments are understandable. They want to commend him to Jesus. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue. And let me say, it's quite possible that he built the synagogue that Jesus has been preaching in. Like there's this personal touch here. Like Jesus appreciates what he's, what he's done. And yet as great an evidence of living faith in the true God as this is, spending a lot of money for a synagogue, it does not do for the centurion what the Jewish leaders who ought to know better are saying that it does. They go to Jesus and say, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built our synagogue. He's worthy, like he deserves it. They plead his works and his merits that he deserves healing grace, but thankfully that's not the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the only resources you and I have in relationship to salvation are the resources of our own fallen sinful nature 
that make that salvation so necessary. Like the only thing you contribute to the whole shooting match is that you're a sinner and you need to be saved by the merits of Christ. I mean, we don't want to have a gospel that's based on our current performance. That is the religions of the world. And that wouldn't be a gospel. Christianity is radically different than that. We plead our need and our helplessness to God. We plead the love of God and the grace of Christ when we go to Him. Well, fourth, Jesus shows compassion even when we don't get it right. It's good news too. See, He responds to the Jewish leader's earnest request and He goes with them. He doesn't stop and set them straight first. He doesn't call out their errors here. He doesn't say, since you've got the gospel wrong and seem to say I owe him grace, I'm not going with you. He doesn't do that. He he sees their heart. He sees their faith. He sees their concern. He sees their need. And he just goes because he's full of grace and mercy to sinners and sufferers. It's good news for that. We don't have to get our theology perfectly correct before Jesus responds to us. We don't have to get our prayers just right before he answers us. We would be bound up in knots if that were the case. We see Jesus responds to us in our need when we go to him for help. It's just overflowing compassion here. Well, fifth, True faith realizes our unworthiness and Jesus' worthiness. It's a huge point here. See, the main point of the story isn't the healing itself, it's the faith of the centurion. Remember, what's the faith Jesus deserves? So the centurion sends another delegation to... Oh, no, excuse me. The centurion has sent a delegation of Jewish leaders to Jesus, urging him to come to his house. Yet, when the centurion realizes they're actually coming, he's actually coming to his house? I mean, it's really kind of odd here, but he, he, you like read between the lines of what's going on, he, he, he realizes Jesus is actually approaching. And it dawns on him what he's asked Jesus to do, and he totally reshuffles and, and changes his posture. He goes, like, did I really ask Jesus to come to my house? Like, did I do that? I don't know if you've ever, like, asked a question and then you couldn't believe you asked that question. And he does that. He, he all of a sudden realized the magnitude of what he's done. And that's a sweet window into humility, isn't it? So he hastily sends another delegation. These delegates are his friends. Like, he calls his friends. No, you got to go, go, hurry. Lord, don't trouble yourself. They're, they're giving Jesus his words. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Like, stop. Don't even come. Don't expend the effort. And, and part of this is that he's aware that Jews didn't enter Gentile homes. That was just taboo. You got unclean. But his sense of unworthiness goes much deeper. Remember, he then says, you know, that's the whole reason I didn't presume to even go to you. Like, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be in your presence. There's this deep sense of personal unworthiness. And notice he calls Jesus Lord. Huge statement. 
And this can't be just a polite form of address. You know, it could be used for sir, but we know it's much more than that on the lips of the centurion. He says this exalted view of Jesus. He's confessing that he knows he's uniquely associated with God. He doesn't have everything sorted out, but he knows this guy is up with God. And it's also insightful that Luke places this story right after that culminating parable in the Sermon on the Plain when Jesus looks at you and me and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? At least that Lord, Lord there is the authoritative rabbi teacher who should be obeyed. And it seems that the centurion's even going higher than that in what he says Jesus can accomplish by the mere word of his mouth. And so you imagine this military guy who surely it's been drilled into him, Caesar is Lord, the most powerful man on earth. And he's looking at Jesus. He's saying, you are Lord. So we step back. The Jewish leaders argued for the centurion's worthiness. But very intentionally, Luke now records that centurion argues for his unworthiness. Like they might think I'm something, but I'm nothing compared to you. Like it's like Peter's amazing catch of fish when Jesus just loads him down with two nets full of fish in chapter five. And instead of jumping up and down and being excited, Peter stands dumbstruck before Jesus and says, depart from me, For I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. I just, like, go away. Like, I'm, I'm polluted. And we get the idea the centurion realizes that, that Jesus is high and exalted, the glorious Lord, and he's weak and frail and sinful before him. He has a deep sense of his own worthiness. That's such a huge element of true faith, our unworthiness to go to God. But sixth, true faith relies on Jesus' authority. So the centurion explains his reasoning to Jesus in a parable, and this is the only time in, the whole, in all the Gospels that anybody tells a parable to Jesus. You'd kind of think twice about telling Jesus a parable, of course, because he's so good at it, but this guy does it. Like, he's just free and easy right out there. I'm coming from a totally different background. I'm going to give you a parable. The centurion makes sense of who Jesus is through his own experience in the military. It's an insight into Jesus' authority that really he can only make. And see, our backgrounds give us insight into Jesus that are unique. And so he's a man in a chain of command. He's in charge of 100 soldiers. That's what a centurion is. And he has a chili arc above him in charge of 1,000 soldiers. And he has a decurion below him in charge of 10 soldiers. So he's in this chain. He has authority of a sum, and he's inferior to others. When his superior gives him an order, he does it. No questions asked. When he orders his inferiors to do something. They do it, no questions asked. The orders are obeyed when they are made by a superior. And he applies this to Jesus. And just think, an army officer who's risen in the ranks of the most powerful army on the face of the earth compliments Jesus this way. It's beautiful. And it seems he's submitting his whole life to him. But notice who he's saying Jesus orders around. It's not just men. 
It's not just his disciples. His point is, he says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Just say the word and he'll be healed. You're so closely related to God that physical weakness and even evil spiritual forces out there in our world that afflict people are subject to your word. You just say it and it goes no matter who it is and what it is doing and wreaking havoc in the world. And like God himself, you speak and people are healed. But say the word. Jesus' ability to heal from a distance was viewed as greater authority than healing up close. Say the word from afar, from a distance, and he'll be healed. Demons submit to you, he's confessing. And so we also have another reason that Luke includes this story, because how relevant for us. We don't have Jesus physically present with us. Like Jesus has risen to the right hand of the Father. He's converted the throne of judgment into a throne of grace for us. We don't see him, but we go to him and we'd say to him, just say the word, just say the word. The demons submit to you, say the word and hearts are soft. Say the word, people have faith. Just say the word, you can do that. You're full of power and full of love. We appeal to your word. How relevant for you today. And that's why Luke includes a story or another reason he does so, that we can go to God and say, just say the word. True faith is known by humility before Jesus and also confidence in his authority. And finally, seventh, true faith may arise in unlikely people and may not in expected people. And so it's a word of hope and it's a word of warning. And so when Jesus hears of the centurion's faith, he is amazed and it's this beautifully human response. We see the human Jesus responding. He really is surprised as a human, as a man. He's surprised, he's overwhelmed. He marvels at him, he delights in his faith. And what amazes him is that such faith comes from an unlikely person, a Gentile military man who you could think, you know, is a company man, he's a practical man, maybe he's jaded and cynical and hardened but he has deep faith with minimal knowledge. He's just gotten it from hearsay. God can give the faith, saving faith to anyone and no one's too closed off. No one's too far away. No one's outside his ability and he shows it to you here. So he encourages you, come to me and tell me, say the word. But at the same time, he's looking at us because he uses this as a teaching lesson to the crowds that are accompanying him. I tell you, not even in Israel have found such faith, he says to the crowd. What he sees in this Gentile, he hasn't seen in his covenant people who should have similar faith. I mean, he's seen faith. We've seen that already in the gospel, but not like this. And even worse, there's only one other place in the gospels where Jesus marvels at anything. And that's in Mark 6. And in Mark 6, he marvels at the lack of faith of those who live in Nazareth. And the point is that sometimes among those who are blessed with great spiritual privilege, access to to the word and much gospel teaching and fellowship, true faith may be weak or it may even be absent. And it's a warning to us to take hold of faith and view it as a prize and a gift. 
not take it for granted. Familiarity breeds contempt. And you and I hear the gospel preached and spoken of and so much that oftentimes it just loses its surprise. It does. It loses its surprise for this preacher. It becomes something I do. I preach the gospel. It's what I do. But am I overwhelmed by it like this centurion is? Like you tell, you tell demons to run and they run. You tell people to be healed and they're healed. Like you're that kind of authority. Like the compassion of Jesus and the authority of Jesus presented here, does it, does it amaze you? to where in the recesses of your mind you would be stirred and enlivened by it. You know, it's a call to us here that we have the centurion's kind of faith in Jesus because that's the kind of faith he's worthy to receive. He's worthy to receive this kind of faith. That's why we do a little self-examination and look at the centurion and say, I want that kind of faith. Would you give me that? Say the word, Jesus. May be the case in all of us. If we're real old, whether we're real young, may that be the faith we have as a body. God add his blessing to you. Amen.